This is Air Commander Starscream, and you are listening to Half Measures. Uh, Half Measures? Sounds like Megatron's battle strategy. <laughs> Welcome to episode 114 of Half Measures, and this week we are putting aside our regular agenda and are about to take a full measure as we look back at Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, and joining me in the Geonosis arena like a clone trooper diving off of a Republic gunship is none other than Scopes himself, Stan Whiting. He's overly critical, he never listens, he doesn't understand. In many ways, Paul, I'm better than him. I'm ready for the trials. It's not fair. I would have bet anything I own that you would have opened up with, with that quote. One of the most quotable quotes from Attack of the Clones. It's it's ironic because I've I don't know whether it's just because of the of just watching this movie, but I've been doing a lot of work of late where the word critical constantly comes up. And every time it comes up, no matter who I'm with, I'll just be like He's overly critical, and it's, it's like a way to test, like, Star Wars fan? Star Wars fan? No? No? I think I think you really have to be deep in it. In fact, anyone who's not familiar with Attack of the Clones or The Bad Batch is really going to wonder what any of this introduction and what we've been talking about is about, to be honest. That's all right. I think... Um, you know, if you've never seen a Star Wars movie, you've, you've come to the right place. We're going to we're gonna take a deep dive. That's right. What's interesting, Dan, is I found, because obviously we, we reviewed The Phantom Menace last week, I, I found the wait in between these movies a lot harder than I expected, given that, given that we're only just getting started on this rewatch. And of course, we're, you know, these are movies we've seen many times. I found the, the, the waiting quite hard. It's unbearable, isn't it? Like I just, I, I just want to charge ahead, and it's making me want to like jump ahead to future movies just so that I can just continue this. I don't know. I'm just, I want, I want to watch it all again and um, kind of just drip feeding myself as a a real lesson in patience. It's it's a Jedi trial in its own right. It really is. It's, it's probably good that it's like that and that we're not actually thinking. Oh no, I've got to watch episode two. So this is this is a good start. It's a good sign. Should we dive in? Uh, okay, so here we go. Attack of the Clones, or its alternate title, uh, Jar Jar's Big Adventure, which was the working title for this movie following some of the backlash to episode one. So this is 10 years after the events of The Phantom Menace, uh, after the, the threat to the planet Naboo. Padme Amidala is now a senator representing her homeworld. Uh, a faction of political separatists led by Count Dooku attempts to assassinate her, and there are not enough Jedi to defend the Republic against the threat, so Chancellor Pal- Palpatine enlists the aid of Jango Fett, who promises that his army of clones will handle the situation. Meanwhile, Kenobi tries to train a young Jedi, Anakin Skywalker, who's grown up, it seems, uh, who fears that the Jedi Code will forbid his growing romance with Amidala. There's a lot to unpack here, Paul. Um, I I guess we just start at the beginning, like any good story. Yeah, no, I think so. And it, what's interesting is episode one, right, was such a big financial hit. But there was, the, the you know, and the world is waiting on episode two. But back in 99, one of the criticisms labeled at the movie was that there wasn't enough action. And so what you notice, well, I noticed straight away on this rewatch is, the opening 20 minutes of this movie goes full action and we've got two different scenes the first of course is the you know the i guess the 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 landing of amidala's decoy ship and then the destruction of that right in the opening sort of two minutes yeah no i, I think you're right this this 
this movie and even just thinking about Revenge of the Sith coming up next, they start very action heavy, don't they? Yeah. But um, yeah, I guess this this is sort of your first shock moment in the movie, isn't it? Because you're like, oh no, is is, is Padme okay? Is, is has she been hurt? And obviously, we if you have watched the Phantom Menace, you you know that she's got a decoy. It's it all, all plays out quite well, but that does sort of set the series of events for I guess Padme needing protection and the. The two Jedi's that are assigned to her for protection, obviously being Obi Wan Kenobi and a uh, still young Anakin Skywalker. And what's kind of interesting about this is they make a big point of, particularly Anakin, saying, I don't know, it's a conversation between Anakin and Obi Wan on the lift on the way up to her apartment, is it's been 10 years since he's seen Padme. Mm. And it's, you know, Obi Wan can sense the, the emotion and the, you know, and Anakin's he's he's sweating. He's like he's got fond memories of uh of Padme and seeing her for the first time is a big deal. And obviously uh Anakin is, is a lot older than he was in the Phantom Menace. Like he's he's uh he's a teenager now. Yeah, he is. And he's he's exhibiting a lot of those um sort of teenage traits and things. I'm gonna have to stop us though straight away and say that the instant I see Obi-Wan and Anakin in that lift, I'm constantly every time i watch this movie jolted by the fact that this is not the obi-wan i think of in my mind i think of obi-wan how he looks in revenge of the sith but here we are we've got obi-wan with uh, with the worst haircut ever it's obi mullet um and watching this movie or even the beard is weak i i agree in fact it kind of almost threw me like i'm like oh this isn't how Obi-Wan looks. And yeah. it's, you know, I don't know if you've seen those sort of various memes and jokes around the place where people replace uh, photos of Jesus with uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yes. And it's often the Jesus from Attack of the Sorry, it's often the, the Jesus. It's often the Obi-Wan from Attack of the Clones because he does look very kind of religious in, in his look. And he's he's still young himself, right? Like when you think about him taking on a, a Padawan, he he is really only just sort of finishing his training with with Qui Gon. Yeah, oh, he really is, and the, the look is, as you say, very distinctive. And they must have known what they were doing there to a certain extent. But yeah, it's um, it is quite jolting. But I quite enjoy the the lift up. I quite enjoy hearing the the uh, the, the sort of the the banter before they go in, and then of course, um, you know, one of the first one of the first things we we encounter in terms of sort of drama is this these 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 what are they like space worms or whatever that the the, the uh i've already forgotten the name of the uh zeb is it the uh yeah, zeb. Yep. the uh bounty hunter puts through the window and it always reminds me of the james bond dr no scene with the spider that in, is in the bed but these jedi are pretty good dan they can sense the worms in the room. That's that's incredible. I thought right off the bat. Well, well this is all a ploy, right? And with um, it, it's a ploy that Anakin set up, and with with Padme to basically like let's set a trap, let's sort of draw the bounty hunters out. And when these like centipede creatures do come out, obviously Artu's scanning the room, oh, and yeah. it's kind of it's kind of a little bit stressful because I think Artu's just kind of waving his like spotlight across the room, and and it's like. A combination of that and relying on, I guess, feeling the disturbance in the force is what um, springs, I guess, Obi Wan and Anakin to action. But that 
I think really does kick off the peak action, as you say, of, of this film. Like it's, we get introduced to these characters, like there's a threat set up and there's just an incredible scene where um, once, once they kind of destroy these little space centipedes, space worms, where Obi-Wan just dives straight out the window to grab this uh, drone type device, which has dispersed the, dispersed the space worms. And obviously Anakin, um, chases in a in a speeder and it's it's just one of those real intense scenes we're getting a, a deeper look at Coruscant and you know just sort of the, the hive of activity that this metropolis sort of city is oh that that whole scene uh diving at the window and then through through the city with the chase I mean there's a lot to unpick there but one of the things is one of the things because I'm going to have a few criticisms about this movie but one of the things this movie does really well is it sets the tone for me of Coruscant. When I think in my mind, of course, I think of this scene, and it's that this is the flavour of the city, and this is what, um, just like Phantom Menace did well with sort of defining what modern the the new Tatooine looks like, if you like. Um, this this really does a fantastic job. But um, just to go back a little bit, I love how you called out R two D two on the uh, sort of like the torch scene, and I mean no offence to anyone who works as a security guard because what i'm about to say is based on what i see in tv shows but it was kind of like he got the he got the torch out and he did like a lazy sweep he's like i don't think there's anything there i'm going back to sleep i'm like it's like it was a real he didn't make much of an effort to protect the senator of naboo well you know i i i don't want to cast shade at r2 because he's a core of the entire franchise and i am sure that um though it might have been a a lazy sweep of the light i am sure that all of his other systems were fully operational correct um yeah but i I think you're right like i I think it was heavily dependent on anakin and obi-wan feeling the feeling the impacts of the of the space wounds yeah Zam Wessel is the name of the bounty hunter, not Zeb. Zeb, of course, is a character from Rebels, so there's a good half measure for you. But that whole scene, as they're on the trying to track down who this uh, would be assassin is, is really, really good. We get some great dialogue, I think, between Anakin and, and Obi Wan as the as they're sort of performing that scene we get to see anakin is reckless and he he's enjoying himself obi-wan clearly doesn't enjoy space flight it's there's a lot of things that come out in that scene yeah and i think this is and you know i don't want to bang on about this all the time but i feel like these scenes and these moments between anakin and obi-wan are at you know at raw value when you think back to 2002 it's kind of like oh why is Anakin you know so unlikable and such a such a punk or if you're maybe looking at it, if you're a bit younger you might be like why is Obi-Wan so uptight but I feel like a lot more I have a lot more comfort and acceptance of the of the of the scene because of my understanding of the wider Star Wars universe and I think just sort of you know we know that uh Anakin is always overly confident we know that he's you know one of the greatest um pilots ever we know that he's sort of headstrong we know that um Obi-Wan is more reserved and why he is and a bit more practiced and and though it kind of just plays out in these haphazard scenes in the context of the whole Star Wars universe it does kind of make sense yeah no it does and I think when you think about the the stretch of the time that we have of Obi-Wan and Anakin across these these two this movie and the next one actually there's there's so much that's around fighting and and hatred and shouting that actually it's moments like this that you actually can if you think about it actually sort of savor and enjoy um so the chase goes through the galactic city and eventually we get to the the Outlander club which is a pretty cool looking bar we get to see uh, 
Anthony Daniels uh, in the background uh, as a human drinking at the bar, which is always is always cool. We get the classic line, why do I get the feeling you're going to be the death of me, Anakin, which is obviously a line that was put in for great humor value. Uh, it's an interesting scene. And then, of course, they they go outside. And just when we think that Zam's going to give up the, uh, you know, the actual who's behind this, uh, Saberdat takes them out. Indeed. And this is the... Um, I guess our core kind of introduction of Django Fett. Yeah. Um, I guess for many people, Boba Fett's father. That's right. And and Django is, uh, and of course we don't sort of fully meet Django until later on in the movie, and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. But one of the things is his look is clearly that Mandalorian look, but he's like a much cleaner look than what we have seen at this point with, with Boba Fett. And it's a very, very, very different look. Um, bit of trivia, Dan. Did you know that Lucas chose the name Django as a reference to the 1966 movie Django? And like Django in that movie, he's also a loner mercenary with a with like a, a, a bit of a past. And of course, that was the inspiration for Quentin Tarantino's Django and Chain. I didn't know that. I love that, and I, I love that you know Star Wars has got some real deep ties in. Uh, I guess you know samurais and cowboys and uh, that sort of whole genre of history and film, and it's it's awesome. Yeah. Now, uh, I don't know if you've got anything else to say on this scene, Dan, but I uh, one of the the best scenes for me is about to come up where Obi Wan goes to see the younglings and Yoda because he's trying to find out where this data comes from. Yes, yeah. And so are you referencing when uh Yoda informs Obi-Wan that he's he's lost the planet? Yeah. It's 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 just a, I remember enjoying it the first time and I laugh every time I see it. It's a really well done scene. <laughs> it is a good scene. It's so funny how you just like, you know, whether you're in the Star Wars universe or you're just doing your day job, everyone's wrecking everyone all the time. <laughs> That's right. You know, like I'm just trying to save the save the galaxy and there's a missing planet and I just need your help and I don't need you punking me in front of these younglings. <laughs> right. A missing planet. How embarrassing, how embarrassing. It, it's it's great fun. And it's a really good visual seen um how that planet sort of map sort of comes out across the screen it's something that i hadn't seen up until that point as well so it's 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 really cool and then of course when he does go off to the the jedi archives it's another scene i really enjoy i love that whole look and feel of the jedi archives yeah i think these are some of the the moments in the star wars universe that give you like they dip your toe in the water of how big this universe is and you know we've never seen like younglings really you know like the a huge group of younglings sort of training we've like this is our first sort of deeper look into the jedi temple obviously going to the library um meeting all these other uh quite famous jedi characters that we don't often know a lot about until sort of years to come when you know we read various books and other tv series are are launched and this is the thing, right? Because it's setting the tone and the look for these these places. You say that the temple in particular. I mean, I know we've seen that in the Phantom Menace, but so many things that will will affect the future in terms of future movies, future TV shows, books, games, whatever it is. This these movies are defining because it's set where it's set, and we're seeing it for the first time. They're defining so much. On that note, another little bit of trivia that I discovered of the Jedi Archives, um, it's it's modelled on the Trinity College Library in Dublin. And 
it is in fact if you look at it online it's actually identical with only like blue lighting and lucasfilm never asked permission to do it but the irish college didn't follow up with any legal action basically because it's worked as an amazing marketing opportunity for them so could i mean could you imagine if you were a star wars fan in ireland you're thinking where shall i go and study i'm going straight to trinity college dan oh without a doubt things like that are amazing out there how they just kind of play out and create kind of these accidentally wonderful things for uh, people around the world. Yeah. Um, R2-D2 accompanies uh, Anakin and Padme as they flee to hide on, hide on Naboo. And that whole scene is, is fine, the, the fleeing. But one of the things I've always noticed, and that because I've noticed it once, I, I notice it every time, is when they're climbing up the stairs, R2-D2 makes a real big song and, song and dance about how hard it is for him to go. You know, he's really struggling to get his legs up the up the stairs. Now, spoiler alert, we're going to see later in the movie that, hey, he's got these things in his arms, that his legs that sort of pop out, and he can just sort of, you know, just lift himself up and and fly. But in this, he's, he's, he's obviously trying to stay undercover, so he's... It's ironic, right, for, a, I would imagine, a relatively forward-thinking uh, planet like Naboo, where R2... When we first meet R2, that they would be, I guess, droid-friendly environments. And obviously, you know, this is a, a very old city and the, and the palace that they're in, but it did seem kind of crazy to me that there was no easy way for, I imagine, many astromech droids to be rolling around. Um, and having to make them deal with stairs just seems kind of outrageous. In fact, I, I almost kind of wish they didn't show him bouncing up the stairs. Like, yes. Yeah. It's like you didn't have to show that. You could have you could have just kept a two a two shot on Anakin and Padme and then got to the top of the stairs and then Artu's there and probably not many people would have thought about how he got there, you know. But they decided to do it. So I always find that interesting. I think too, in all of these scenes, this is where we're really starting to get the uh low-key romance starting between Anakin and Padme and there's there's a scene uh in here which frustrates me to this day when uh, basically um, Padme is talking to her her council and the Queen about where she's going to hide on the planet and someone refers to uh, Anakin as a Jedi Master or a Jedi Knight or, or I can't remember what it is but Padme's like he's just a Padawan like basically just wrecks him in front of everyone like it's it's so oh, I felt so bad for Anakin like no wonder he goes on to be a Sith Lord like <laughs> that, that single moment is probably the, the real shift there are several moments, and that is a really good shout where he just gets absolutely, you know, and, and, and Obi-Wan keeps referring to him as my young apprentice. And it's like, hey, dude, I'm like, I'm 20. Can you stop talking to me like I'm a kid? Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, but obviously, though, so they they head off into, into the sort of secluded part of Naboo. And what's kind of interesting about it is, I actually don't think they're doing this very stealthily at all. Like they, first of all, they go off on this um, refugee transport and they don't really kind of tone down their costumes. Like they're still, that they have a farewell on the, on the refugee transport with Obi-Wan. Like, so there's no kind of like hiddenness about who they are. Then they talk, tell basically the whole Queen's court about where they're going. As far as keeping it stealth, I, it wasn't a very stealthy exit for me. In, the, in, in an Earth setting, the paparazzi would have been all over all of those scenes. Um, it would have been on the news saying Amidala on a refugee ship. You know. and, and it's interesting, right? Because in The Phantom Menace, the Queen obviously has all the power. And now that Padme is the senator has all the power and it's just kind of interesting that 
I would have thought if you need to protect the um, the senator, then you probably also need to protect the queen. Uh, but no. But anyway, they, they head off into their um, Airbnb on the the sort of deep side of Naboo. And not only that, Paul, they've got like wait staff. They've got like, you know, people making them meals. And, you know, you can, you can see this is a, a deluxe experience. Oh, it really is. Like they're giving that a full five-star rating, that whole place. I mean, the flowers, everything is immaculate. I mean, the sets are fantastic. Um, I'm going to have to label another criticism. So, we, you know, we've got Anakin and Padme spending time, you know, frolicking in the fields and... Yeah, I just struggle with a lot of the scenes. And there's going to be a question I asked you last time. I'm going to ask you again uh, later, but I'm going to just bring my answer to the table, which is if I could change one thing in this movie, what would I change? I, I would change the... I, I would have someone come in and write, rewrite the scenes, any of the scenes between uh, Anakin and Padme. I, I feel like George Lucas does so much so well and there's so much that i'm so grateful for that he's done despite so much criticism that he seems to unfairly get at times but i have to say that the these scenes i I just think they they need someone who could write uh who could write a relationship from a love or an intimacy point of view i just felt like these scenes didn't play out well for me i completely agree and i think it's one of the kind of downfalls i think of of the attack of the clones because this relationship is so critical to the whole uh, Star Wars story. And unfortunately, every time we kind of see any moment of relationship building, often Anakin comes across like super whiny. And it, it, uh, it actually makes it hard for me to believe that, that Padme would even actually have feelings for him because he's always just, you know, showing his anger. He's moaning about something. He's complaining about Obi-Wan. And it doesn't feel like this is the cornerstone of sort of building their relationship. And I I actually think they could have stayed away from all of those things and just purely made it about how much they really cared for each other. Yeah. And it would have probably just shifted the dynamic more. And I think obviously they would have had to thought, think about ways of how they bring out Anakin's feelings about some of these things. But I don't think like the, the work hadn't been done to earn the moans. Like you have to, we needed the good stuff. Yeah. We needed the good stuff. This is, this is exactly what it is. And there are some interesting points that come out of there, like uh, you know when they're talking politics, which may may not sound like it's going to be that interesting, but basically the way Anakin describes how things should work, and Padme calls him out and says, "Well, that sounds a bit like a dictatorship." And then he says, "Well, if it works," and then he he tries to play off like he's joking, but as we all know, he he's actually of a mind that it, dictatorship is, is going to work, and no wonder he he winds up with the with the dark side. There's also, uh, I guess, a number of kind of, you know, speaking of how to how to write a relationship scene, so many kind of cringy scenes of them like rolling around the fields and kind of, you know, switching from intense political conversations to kind of giggling and laughing. And again, I think it just speaks to the point of not a very well written romance scene. No, correct. And look, this 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 rewatch, I watched the whole thing through. I have to admit, whether I should or not, I'm going to. I have watched Attack of the Clones in the past and I've actually, especially if I'm watching it on a Blu-ray disc where you can actually skip scenes or whatever, I've actually skipped entire scenes and gone straight into the next scene, which I do enjoy, which of course is uh, Obi-Wan off to Kamino, um, which is an entire 
planet of water i think it's a great concept i think it's a really great look at again it's something we haven't seen in star wars before and this whole part of the story whether that's the b story or whatever you want to call it this side of the story i'm really actually enjoying at this point yeah i think this is a good chat um i don't think i've ever done the skip myself um but i i get why you would um I think, yeah, so it's really interesting going to Camino, right? Because this is our, our real first exposure to, you know, how, how the clones came to be. Um, the sort of the dark workings of, uh, the Sith in the, in the background. And just as you say, amazing planet. And I think that's something. I enjoy about the Star Wars universe is going to these different planets. And it's one of the criticisms, you know, that I think a lot of people have of current day Star Wars is we spend way too much time on Tatooine. And it's like, actually, there's such a wonderful world out there of these different places. It's, it's good to be able to uh, spend some time on this watery planet. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I'm sure we'll see Tatooine in the future, right? Um, Camino, though, yeah, just a really different look. The, the, the Caminos themselves are the most uh alien i think uh, if that's the right word to use that we've seen perhaps since i was up until this point even even if you think about jar jar or any of the others this there's something very very much alien about these these guys but i love the look of of the place the feel the way they talk the way they move i enjoy all of the dialogue and of course you know obi-wan stumbles across uh an army which they think he's coming to collect on. I mean, what are the chances of that? That's pretty good. And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, we based it on this bounty hunter. And, oh, do you know where he is? Yeah, he's just downstairs. Do you want to come and meet him? I mean, it's awesome. It's it's very convenient, but it's awesome. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because our obviously this is our sort of deeper introduction to Django Fett, and it's sort of Django Fett without his armor on, without his helmet, and it's sort of much more of a, a personal interaction. And one of the things with these scenes is obviously we meet Boba as well, mm. and I don't, I imagine it's different around the rest of the world, but this is something we've talked about on the pod before. When uh, Kiwis see other Kiwis on film it's often very cringy and it's almost like we hear our accents back and it's like oh um, and there's quite a few moments that, despite it being a great scene and very awesome um, it, it does still have some components of that for me I, I don't know if it's because I'm an immigrant to New Zealand but I never have that and I, I just absolutely love it um, actually just to take it back a bit when we, when we were watching it Diana pointed out to me, oh, that's Jake Lagaya, because at the start um, with the decoy. Um, fun fact on that, um, that part was originally written for um, Captain Panaka, uh, who played by uh, Hugh Quashie, but he turned down the offer to return, and so the character was written out, and that gave uh, yeah, another Kiwi the chance to come and play Captain Typho, which was uh, pretty cool. We'll see him again in the next one. But um, well, on, that, on that note, we've also got uh, Rena Owen as... Uh, Who's another Kiwi actress? Oh yes, as one of the, yeah. So look, the Kiwis are are riddled throughout the Star Wars universe, which is very awesome. Yeah, I think the filming down under obviously helped with that. Um, Django showing up though, um, it's for me. It's it is a really great moment. And I have to admit, you know, we're watching this now years later. The the book of Boba Fett the the mandalorian has amplified my interest in these scenes or just how much attention i pay to it it just it feels these scenes feel richer because of what's come later 
Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. And there's obviously that great moment too uh, when Obi-Wan is is meeting uh, Jango and Boba where Jango asks him to sort of close the door to hide his, hide his yes, armor. Yes, yes. And it's 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 so good, isn't it, just to see his uh, his Mandalorian armor sitting there. It is, and yeah, just, just hidden, and we just get to see a little glimpse of it and the door shuts, um, and it's... And then, of course, you know, Django's no fool. He knows he knows what's up. And as soon as everyone's at the door, he's back your things. We're leaving. And it's just it's such a great moment. And I just I love the fact that we're now because we know we're coming into the battle. But just to take it back a step, I wanted to talk to you, Dan, about Cypher And it was this this whole creation of this character um, who is, by the way, explored in some depth in the book, uh, Dooku Jedi Lost, which is one I've recommended to you before, and I think you'd love. Um, but this whole idea that many, many years ago, a Jedi had come along and actually ordered the creation of this army, and um, it's all a mystery to us at this point. I love that. Yeah, it's good, right? And this again, you know, these little just like nuggets of information that just like spark like fan theories and like like deep like, I want to know more about this and who is um Cypher DS and all that. So it's 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 what I love the most about the Star Wars universe. We um we do cross back over to Anakin and Padme and I made a note of one of the things that he says here, which um is is one of the classic you know, I hate sand and we have that whole that whole scene. And of course, this is why Obi-Wan eventually hides Luke on Tatooine, because he knows that if Anakin's still alive, he's not gonna go to any planet with sand to go looking for him. That's this is this is the this is the realization I've come to. That's <laughs> I guess it makes sense. Also, I look I think in Darth Vader's cost like Darth Vader's whole costume outfit is not sand friendly, you <laughs> no. know. You, you're already having trouble breathing. The last thing you need is sand in the ventilator. I, I've always thought it's probably not snow friendly, so I've always thought they handled the Hoth scene quite well. But anyway, we'll come to that in, an, in another podcast, I'm sure. Um, where are we going to from here, Dan? So we're Camino. Oh, we've got we, now we've got the the battle, of course, between Obi Wan and and Django. When Django basically Obi Wan gets told, "Okay, go get this bounty hunter, bring him in." There's no evidence. There's nothing. It's just there's something about this bounty hunter, and that for the council is like, "Yep, yeah, bring him in." You know, we're we're the justice keepers of the world. There's something even worse for me about that scene is that Obi-Wan has to do that in the rain. And it's like, you know, like you're wearing your full Jedi robe, which is feels like a heavy wall. Yeah. And it's like you're then standing there outside your spaceship, pouring with rain. You're talking to the council. It's like, there's got to be another way. There's got to be another way for you to kind of like ring into the council and get some advice. And because I, it can't be, once you've got that robe wet, Paul, that, that's probably you for the week. When I work in Wellington, I walk from the train station to my work. The streets, the council have taken a lot of effort to put as many sort of, you know, shelters and, and roofings and ceilings above where you're walking, all the common walkways. On a planet that's completely water, they've got the the place where the ships slide in. It's just like, it's just an open path into the buildings. It's like, there's no, there's no coverings or anything. They've made no effort to think about people's condition. And like you say, that's going to be a nightmare to walk around with that wet robe on. Indeed, indeed. So yeah, this is obviously uh, a, a great battle scene because not only do we have Obi-Wan facing off against Django, we've got Boba getting involved. Um, there's some, you know, very intense scenes of uh, people like sliding off the rails, almost falling into the ocean. Uh, you've got Django using missiles from his rocket pack. You've got, you've got all sorts of uh, devices and tools to, for this fight to play out. And, uh, 
again, one of the things that's always kind of weirdly bothers maybe too strong a word about Slave One as a as a ship is how you have to kind of like climb in like almost kind of awkwardly then like flop back down into the seat and then yeah. obviously when you fly that that seat corrects itself but it feels like a very awkward spaceship it is it is it's something that's discussed many times and comes up and again in the mandalorian and again in the book of boba fett it's um it's interesting though that of course this is our f- if you think about it in terms of timeline at this point this is the first time we've seen the ship and it's actually boba who flies the ship first before we actually see Django flying, so even at a young age, he's he's already behind the wheel. Indeed. Well, and I guess just to clarify as well, like because Boba is uh, an unmodified clone, right? So it's that was uh, one of the terms of the of the deal. Complete genetic replication, no, no, gen- you know, no genetic rewrites whatsoever. Question for you, Paul. Hmm. Um, and it might be a little bit too soon in the timeline, but could Omega be uh, somewhere? Yeah, I think too so. soon, maybe too soon. I, no, I think it's interesting because I, I seem to recall you mentioned something like this when we were talking about the Bad Batch many podcasts ago, and I feel like if they're going to retro that some point to sort of bring that history back, then I think you could be right. I, I think I think you could be right. Mm, interesting, but yeah, that looked great scene, and obviously uh, Django Fett is is no fool. He's a he's a battle hardened warrior. Puts up a very good fight for Obi Wan. Uh, obviously, Obi Wan comes out. Falls off the 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 edge of the well, it's not really a fence or a barrier, it's the edge of the platform at some point. Um, and anyway, manages to get himself back into into the building up an elevator. Um, comes running out with his lightsaber, which I thought was a little bit foolish. Yes, to be honest, I thought the same because he throws a tracking device on uh, Slave One the spaceship, and having the the lightsaber out really draws attention to him because it easily. Um, Boba could have turned that ship around and blasted the the landing platform. Oh, see, I thought about it from a health and safety point of view. I thought it's very, it's very dangerous that he was going to cut himself with trying to throw something whilst also having a, a fully lit. I mean, health and safety would have a field day in Star Wars. I mean, you just mentioned about you know how they fell down. There was there was no sort of fencing or barriers. You know, we've got Death Star elevator shafts with with no sort of you know no one's thought about any sort of safety anywhere. But um, I did think that that as you said that Django Obi Wan fight is really good. It's it it does it sort of takes what we'd already seen about how Boba Fett fights in Return of the Jedi, which of course at this point is all we've seen. Um, and it and it's it's set a bit of a style of how Mandalorians fly and look and what we see in the future. So again, it's it's setting it from a universe context. It's such an important scene. Indeed, indeed. So I guess from there we are, we obviously like move the battle into space uh, because Obi Wan sort of gives chase to Jango and Boba, and again we have a, a pretty great space chase. We have uh, people hiding in asteroids. Uh, we have the sort of the big EMP um, bombs being dropped. It's it's another great scene. Those seismic charges, the sound. I have yet to encounter a better sound in a movie experience, and certainly from a cinema experience, it's absolutely memorable. The whole the fact that they have they cut the sound and it's just absolute silence, and then you get a big. No, it's it's incredible, and it like I say, I've never found anything more satisfying. Mm, it's good. It's good, and obviously, um, you know the the tactic that Obi One uses here to hide on an asteroid is actually later used um, by uh, Boba Fett in in his 
yeah. um, adventures. I, I thought about that myself and I did a little bit of reading. And according to George Lucas, Obi-Wan hiding in the Genesis asteroid field teaches young Boba Fett a lesson that he will then use to his advantage during adulthood, um, having learned you know, from Obi-Wan. Uh, Boba does that trick on Han Solo to hide in the Empire Strikes Back. So that that's from the maker himself. So that that is canon. Mm, I love that. I love that. So where are we going from here, Paul? Are we going back to, or I guess it's kind of about Obi-Wan heading to Geonosis. Yeah, there is. There's that going on. And then, of course, we've got, um, despite his, his hatred of the beach, we've got Anakin and then Padme um, back to back to Tatooine. Um, see, this is the thing. This is one of the struggles I have with this movie is even now talking to you on the podcast, I've already forgotten. Why, why are we going from Naboo to Tatooine? I've already forgotten what the rationale is there. Well, it's because uh, Anakin has this sort of real bad feeling about his mum. Of course. And he's he's really worried about her. And he he obviously, between him and Padme, decide that they need to go there and That's investigate and, and see what's going on. And I guess interesting things about this scene, we get to see Watto again. Yes. Um, and which is, which is kind of nice. Uh, nice kind of throwback. Nice that Watto gets to see uh, a more growing up Anakin. Um, we obviously get to meet the Lars family. Um, and ultimately, again, this is some of the, the poor scenes I think about, about the romance. Anakin's so angry at this point and he's so, I, like, he's so furious that the Tuscan Raiders have taken, have taken, um, his, his mum that uh, this is where the, the, the anger really starts to sort of, to boil. Those Tuscans walk like men, but they are vicious mindless monsters that's what we're being taught at this point and in in terms of what we've already seen in a new hope uh we're hating these tuscans and of course our opinion may change as we we go through the timeline but it's interesting it's so it's so interesting how you talk about how not being the best of scenes because you're right but at the same time when i'm watching this i'm thinking it's so great how they've recreated the Lars residence how they've they've done that whole recreation of what was you know the what was the opening for us in in a new hope and it's so satisfying we've even got luke's land speeder in the garage you can just see it i mean it is absolutely superb in terms of the look and the visuals right Oh, no, I, I agree with you that the scenes, I was more just talking about the, the romance yeah. side of it. So, But yeah, the actual, the actual like, seeing our our future homestead where we're going to meet Luke is so exciting. Yeah. And, you know, there's moments like that, which, you know, as a Star Wars fan, just get you so, so hyped up. Yeah, I feel like the people that worked on the sets and the visuals and all of the things will be disappointed at how history is looking at this movie in terms of the bigger picture because because of the story and because of the things that didn't work. But um, I do have a question for you, Dan, as well, because, and I am jumping ahead a little bit, but I don't want to forget it. Um, thinking of the Lars residence, um, there are there are three graves, um, and I'm jumping ahead to when Anakin comes back with with uh, his mother's body, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But just before I forget, what are the three graves? Do we have any idea who who these others are? I've never thought about it to be no, honest. I just I just spotted it. This is the first time I ever noticed it, and I think it's only because I knew we were going to talk about it on the podcast. I was sort of watching more carefully, maybe. I guess I I wonder whether it, might, it could have been Lars' first uh, first wife. Um, yeah, could have been. That's one, right? Yep. Yep. Um, it, I guess it could have been a, a parent or yeah, something potentially. I, I, I just I, I've always noticed that they made a point of having three there, but um, but yeah, so we're we're there. Um, three POs there. Um, unlike the Phantom Menace, 
where he's all exposed wires, he now has this dirty metal plating, which somehow is more jolting to me than the, the wires look. Another interesting fact, they didn't create a new C3PO um, suit for the film. Instead, they took the original one that he last wore in Return of the Jedi and just de-aged it and just repainted it, which I thought was fascinating. That's amazing. Imagine still being, still being able to like, like, yeah. um, fit the C-3PO costume is, is an incredible thing. Yeah. Um, the music is something we haven't talked about at this point, but this is one of the first times I, I really noticed the music because they, they, they use the Skywalker theme sparingly, and I think that's important. And they did the same thing in The Force Awakens, but we'll come to that later. Um, but when they use it, it's so effective. And so they use the Skywalker theme as he prepares to, to leave to go and find his mother. And then when he returns, it's the dark theme, it's the Palpatine theme, and it's the Vader theme. So it's he's going out with the Skywalker theme and coming back. I thought that was really well done. Yeah, no, very, very well done. There's also, and I can't quite recall whether this happens uh, before... Anakin goes out or when he gets back, but there's that scene where Anakin and Padme are sort of looking into each other's eyes and the shadow's projected onto the wall and it very much looks like uh, a sort of Darth Vader-type shadow that uh, Anakin's projecting. We we were thinking about the same things. I looked that up as well because I thought that's that's in- incredible. But they they said that it was not intentional. It was entirely coincidental because i thought oh they've 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 done something to his hair to Mm. make it look like that but they they claim the producers that it was entirely coincidental but you're so right it's amazing so um what let's talk about the scene obviously where anakin um speeds off into the desert he tracks down the tuscan raiders he ends up um rescuing his his mother a little too late unfortunately she passes away and anakin you know, and this is a very dark moment in the Star Wars universe, and there's many dark things, but not many that uh, that we see. Um, and this this is this is Anakin unleashing his full fury on the on the Tusken Raiders. It is, and you know, this movie, you know, doesn't come with a you know the the rating on it isn't high, and yet he makes reference to the fact that he slaughtered them like animals, and not just the men but the women and the children yeah he he really starts to show that and when his mother does pass away and he looks up at the camera um there's nothing jedi about him at that point at all interesting little bit of trivia for you here paul as apparently you can hear qui-gon's voice in the background uh during this scene and this is the the force ghost of qui-gon trying to stop anakin's rage but clearly not working yep and the uh the use of that Qui-Gon um, wasn't, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Again, wasn't accidental. Um, it was another thing that I um, I noticed. And so I thought, oh yeah, I wonder what the story what the story is there. And I I looked it up and it's, um, uh, according to the canon, it's Qui-Gon's force ghost trying to stop Anakin's rage, but failing. So yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's, that's it's, right. I, I, I never knew that until, today, until this week. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, so... Um, kind of obviously a dark but a great scene for me in terms of like showing the shift um mm. and showing Anakin's uh lack of control of the of, of potentially his, his feelings and emotions yeah and so um I mean I guess we're, we're going through in a fair bit of detail but one of the things we have to get to of course is um once you know we've dealt with the the death of the mother is we're now after geonosis and of course 
we're sort of like both of them are coming to Genesis. We've got Anakin and Padme coming to Genesis, and we've got Obi Wan arriving at, at Genesis as well. And of course, this is where we also have the um, the the introduction of of Count Dooku, who's the main villain in this movie. He has his yeah, he has that honor of being mentioned in the opening crawl, which not many people get. But we don't actually see him now until this point. We're already like, well, I think about an hour and a half into the film. And I quite like that, that they sort of draw out the weight to finally see who is this guy you mentioned in the opening crawl. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I was, I was looking at in this watch as well that, you know, Count Dooku is so known to me uh, as a villain. And yet we don't see him in this. It's 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 well done, and I think it actually builds up the tension around who is this Count Dooku and how much of a of a threat is he? Yeah, and of course it's Christopher Lee, and the 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 use of an actor of his stature is for me has the same. When I think about A New Hope, I think about Alec Guinness, and I think about Peter Cushing, and I feel like it's that same level of that tier of actor at that level that just really hammers home. The, the 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 prestige around that character. I love that. Mm-hmm. So obviously in our sort of story now, so Obi-Wan has arrived on Geonosis, finds out kind of what's going on, knows that Dooku's there, reports back to the council and ultimately gets captured. And uh, uh, this distress message is sort of shared out and Anakin and Padme decide to attempt to go and rescue him. And against kind of the advice of the the council and and everyone else because obviously the threat on Amidala is still very, still very real but um Padme being who she is says well you're basically my protection my bodyguard you'll go where I go we're off to sa- off to save Obi-Wan and this kind of brings our our heroes together it does Star Wars does this quite well they always find a way of justifying how someone ends up somewhere so like you know they said to protect me so if i go here you have to come with me we see it later on in the sequels we saw it in the phantom menace where qui-gon's like stay in the stay stay there anakin stay there and you know and then of course the cockpit you know he sets the 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 fighter off there's always a way of justifying well i did what you told me um i always find that quite interesting but yes and now we come into an area of the movie where i for me, I lose a lot of interest. The Battle of Geonosis the, in its entirety somehow doesn't work for me. And I noticed that this movie, Dan, this movie is a long watch, right? It's um, it's two hours 22. And until we get to the, uh, the Last Jedi movie, episode eight, this was the longest running Star Wars movie of all time. And I just feel like if I was to come through with a cutting knife, there's a lot of geonosis that I would be cutting out. Yeah, well, I guess there, there's a lot to unpack. And I, it's funny you say that because I, I think I feel the same way. Obviously, there's the the moments, if we kind of just sort of move through the scenes where uh, Anakin, Padme and Obi-Wan are sort of uh, in this gladiatorial pit. Uh, it all kind of, they obviously escape. There's a whole bunch of chaos uh, all the Jedi's arrive, Mace Windu arrives, there's some intense kind of uh, fighting scenes and I think I kind of like it up in, up in that moment because this is the first time we're seeing like mass Jedi's kind of arrive and uh, and it's I think it's the, it's the battle but afterwards which goes on maybe a little bit too long for me uh, but I think there's some, there's some interesting scenes in this when where we've got all of our Jedi's right because you know this is 
Mace Windu ultimately kills Django, Django Fett, in a, which I guess in one way confirms the power that Mace Windu holds and, and how experienced he is. And at the same time is like kind of disappointing because we've just been introduced to this great bounty hunter and he's already lost. Obviously Boba Fett sees this. He's devastated to see his, his father kind of cut down and, and cut in half. And we lose a number of Jedi's in these fights. And it, it's always kind of like bothered me that I'm like, how, why are some of these Jedi's dying, oh. uh, dying so, so, so quickly? And i done a little bit of research on this, Paul. And one of the interesting things about it is because the Jedi had to mobilize so quickly and bring a force, they pretty much grabbed every Jedi available in the temple. Yep. And not all of those Jedi, uh, Anakin Skywalkers go out on missions and do things. A lot of these Jedi's are, are diplomatic people or they've got, they may have a lightsaber, but their, their role is, far different to what we typically think of for a Jedi. Yeah, I did I did research too. 160 of them came along and it always bothers me how many of them get cut down. And what you've just described there obviously goes some way to describe why that is. Um, but you and I who uh, have watched The Clone Wars and we've seen Anakin, Ahsoka, and sometimes Obi-Wan single-handedly take down just so many droids and so many, it's like, really? Did that many Jedi really get it's it's uh, it's interesting. But going back to what you said about Django, it really bothers me that they decided to to kill him off so early in this in this sort of trilogy. I feel like he could have played a part and then met his demise because they're trying to show the scene of Boba having the you know the, oh yeah I'm going to get revenge and, and that's why I'm going to turn into the character you know later. And I just feel like they could have brought that in a bit later. But hey, it is what it is. Samuel L. Jackson walks in and says this party's over, and he really means it. Indeed, and it's always a bit like the Darth Maul thing, isn't it? Like we, oh my god, great villain, and then we lose, we lose him straight away. Maybe not to the the same level that Darth Maul is, but interesting nonetheless. The you know they've captured Anakin and Padme. That's and and also Obi Wan. That that's hard to do. It's hard to actually capture a Jedi, and they've managed to do that. But rather than if they're gonna say, okay, well we're gonna end you, rather than do it, you know clean and execution style they there's this elaborate arena scene which again there are some things about it which are always fun um particularly um i don't know if it's because i you know a few weeks ago was watching james bond but there is a moment where obi-wan <laughs> says something that every time i hear it all i hear is roger moore when he's like anakin's saying oh you know i'm worried about padme and she, he just sort of looks over and goes she seems to be on top of things and you know she's she's climbing up i mean it's the most <laughs> ridiculous thing but the whole elaborate um death scene which then sort of brings out the the whole big battle it's it, i think it looked good in the trailer i remember seeing the trailer thinking oh wow i can't wait to get to this scene but in reality yeah i don't know that this worked for me yeah, I, I think you're right. Like it could have been a, a, it could have been just a rescue with uh, Anakin and Obi and Padme, sorry, and that it probably still could have worked. But I guess one of the things that this really cements right is not only do we have all these Jedi's arrive, we have Yoda arriving in the Republic um, gunships with all of the clones, yeah. and how quickly they're going to like mobilize this army, and all of a sudden the the clones are just responding to the orders of the Jedi, and it, it kind of like this is huge in the Star Wars universe, right? When you think about it from the the animated Clone Wars series, like this is the the starting point of that adventure. Yeah, it really is. And look, I, I whilst I'm saying there's things I don't like, you're right. That that moment is is great. There are some great scenes that come out of it. The arrival of 
the the Republic army and, and Yoda just casually standing on the edge, you know, of the Republic gunship as it comes down, like a boss, or like bringing the boys. It's like that. That is pretty incredible. There are some other great scenes here, of course. Actually, one of my favorite scenes from the entire movie is when Dooku's interrogating or talking to, I should say, to Obi Wan. Um, uh, and he's got him in those those rays that obviously stop the Jedi from from escaping. I thought that was a really important scene. It really tried to explain how um, Dooku had, you know, what his vision was, what his view was as to why things weren't working. And um, I I always love it when he says, what if I told you that the Republic was now under the control of the Dark Lord of the Sith? And Obi-Wan's like, I don't believe you. <laughs> and he just dismisses it. But actually, Dooku was making a really big effort to say, hey, do you know what? And then he even goes so far as to say, yes, they're all under the the illusion of Darth Sidious. He actually calls him out by name. And I'm wondering, was this part of Sidious's master plan? Or is Dooku actually making a last ditch sort of, hey, just help me sort this out? I don't know. I've never been sure there. It's a little bit of both, right? Because there's always that thing where, you know, no matter who is our sort of our, our villain and our and our Sith, they're always kind of like half working for Sidious, but they're also half trying to see if they can take over the galaxy on their own. Yeah, so yeah. it could always go either way. It's true. Um the and it, it also um you know, after we've we've gone past the battle and, and they, they chase uh on the gunships, they chase the the Dooku we then come to the the battle. Am I jumping ahead too far, Dan? Or no, no, no. Let's let's go. Yeah, we we've got the the battle between Dooku and and Anakin and Obi Wan, and, and Obi Wan is is screaming at Anakin as as they're going along because Padme falls out and, and what have you, and he's like, I can't take him alone. And we get this true um, sort of um, appreciation for just how strong a Sith Lord. Dooku is, and we touched back this uh, on this back in uh, podcast one hundred and six when we talked about uh, Dark Disciple. You know, this is this is the guy that takes on Anakin Skywalker and Obi Wan. Look at me, I took down Darth Maul Kenobi, and they are no match for for Dooku's mastery of the dark side, his lightsaber combat style, uh, force lightning. You know, basically, he 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 owns both. I mean, he cuts off. Anakin's arm, you know, he's in control. Yeah, and I think this is one of the great things that Star Wars does, right, is never underestimate your opponent. And, you know, to to us as a viewer, like this is another kind of like old man, surely someone like Obi-Wan and Anakin can take him down, but, you know, obviously obviously they don't and it becomes a, a very intense battle. And like you said at the start of this, you really get an appreciation for how powerful a Sith Lord is. Yep. And Christopher Lee was 80 at the time this was filmed, so kudos to him for doing so well. Obviously, the, the fighting scenes were a stunt devil, but so much of it was still him. And I just, I, yeah, he, he, he really rocks in this movie for me. Um, he, he takes them both out. He's basically, he's basically sort of, you know, he's got his keys, he's combing his hair, he's putting his coat on, he's ready to leave, but the party's not over yet because someone else turns up. Well, and this is where we see the 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 shadow first, right? And yes. sort of slowly walking in is uh, Master Yoda, 
And I remember still to this day, Paul, seeing this in the theatre in Hawke's Bay and the theatre erupting in a chair to see Master Yoda kind of like slowly like peel his cloak back and reveal his lightsaber. And never in my life would I have thought I'm going to see Master Yoda with a lightsaber and a jewel. And just like, you know, don't underestimate a Sith Lord. Don't underestimate Master Yoda. He may be... uh, you know, 500 plus years old, he he may be small, but he goes to town on Count Dooku. He really does. It is, it is truly iconic, in fact, because, you know, one of my criticisms of this movie is that there's nothing quotable for me. When I think about Star Wars movie, I always think of great quotes. If you think about the original trilogy, so many great lines and great scenes. But in terms of iconic scenes, what you just described, Dan, is what this movie delivers and it is a moment that i think we all remember and it never gets boring each time you see it um and and of course it's 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 that transition from old man struggling to walk in with the walking stick to suddenly him going just just crazy and we see this fighting style that none of us knew could possibly have existed and i have to admit that uh i think on reflection i think they 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 did really well with how they utilize his size and his ability to spin and i think it it i think it still plays out well well and this is the thing right like we've never you know obviously we're watching these in timeline order right now but you know we didn't you know the way they were released we never had that opportunity and so to my mind, you know, force lightning is kind of like how do you how do you combat that? Yeah. And the fact that uh, Yoda can just kind of like capture it in his in the palm of his um, three fingered claw yeah. is 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 incredible, right? So it's it, it really does just speak to its power because we've only ever seen Yoda as a as a very frail, very small, kind of quirky uh, little alien. That's right, and you know we talked last time about the use of the puppet versus the CGI and. And generally, I prefer the puppet. So I'm thinking Empire Strikes Back, uh, Last Jedi. But um, the, the, this is where the CGI truly works. And not just in terms of the battle scenes, but also some of the facial expressions are so necessary. So like when Dooku is shooting that lighting, lightning at him and he captures it as he brings it in and he says, much to learn, you still have. He has the most, oh yeah, you didn't see that coming, did you? Look on his face that you wouldn't get with with a puppet. And this is where CGI Yoda is just absolutely superb. And I think just, you know, speaking of the CGI, we've actually got to give a shout out to the whole film because this, you know, the HD um, recap of this film on Disney Plus is so good. And like I kind of thought to myself going into Attack of the Clones that uh, it's probably aged a bit now. You know, we've talked a little bit about this with some of the, the James Bond films that you've been watching, particularly when that's sort of like that early, late 90s, early 2000s CGI. But yeah. this cut looks pretty incredible yeah. 99% of the time. No, I, I fully agree. I think um, it's it, it just has aged so well. And even when you talked about Watto, it made me think, the the look and feel of Watto and how good it is would would fly in a in a movie today. I wouldn't expect it to look any better than that. It, they had really mastered so much, and um, the final scene, the final fight, um, just yeah, all of this this elevates this movie for me. And I just wish we could have got to it a little bit sooner. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So uh, obviously, in all of this, Dooku ends up escaping. 
yeah. um, which is, I guess, critical for our, our next movie. Um, but I guess interesting, right? Because we kind of left with Anakin obviously missing part of his arm. Uh, Obi-Wan is also sort of battered and bruised. And it's kind of like this, you know, a lot happens in this movie. And as you say, this is this huge kind of like almost additional battle on top of an already um, quite big story kind of sets us up nicely for the for the next movie. Yeah, I think it does It does really set it up well. We've, we've cut down the number of Jedi, which of course we need to be able to get to where we get to you know, in a new hope, we've already cut that numbers, those numbers down. We've got the army all ready to go. As you say, everyone's battered and bruised. Um, there's, there's a lot going on. And then, uh, I love that, that final scene where, um, Dooku flies, flies back and goes see Sidious. And, you know, he's just, he's, he's, he's so pleased. He's like, Oh, great. The, the war's underway. You know, everything's going as I've foreseen. And it's, you know, underneath all of this, Everything is going Palpatine's way. It's incredibly well thought out, like all of these things. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, stuff, obviously, in the the wider box in the universe where, you know, uh, Dooku actually hired the Tusken Raiders to take Anakin's mum, all that sort of triggering events. The fact that, you know, in The Phantom Menace, the the whole war was against a, a droid army because... Uh, Palpatine knew that the Jedi's would probably never engage in a, a battle against other sort of life forms. The establishment of the army and starting, uh, it's an it's an incredible master plan. It is, and we final we finish of course um, with um, the shotgun wedding, uh, you know, with just C three PO and R two D two as witnesses of of Anakin and Padme. They didn't waste much time there, you know. They 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 tied the knot pretty quickly. Again, again, just to sort of harp on about this relationship, it, it kind of was like, what? Like, we're jumping straight to a secret wedding? Especially when I think, you know, Padme has some very strong values, which I imagine, you know, compromising them wouldn't wouldn't be easy. Yeah. Um, and I think this is where that – I don't think that wedding's ever earned enough for me. Um, but nevertheless, it happens. And again, another, I guess – you know, we're going down a path. I am always surprised, though, that uh, C-3PO is included in that wedding party because I feel like in real life, C-3PO would be a real gossip Paul. And I feel like if you want to keep the secret wedding on lock, you don't want C-3PO there. He's the last person you want there. He, throughout the nine movies, or in fact, he's even, even more than that, isn't he? he? He is constantly speaking out of turn. In fact, we never really touched on the C-3PO scenes back at Geonosis, but that some of the comedy that he brought, uh, which of course I guess was delivered by Jar Jar in the previous movie, some of it worked quite well. But on reflection, I think there was a line or two too many from from three PO during the the fight scenes. But hey, he's there and he's at the wedding. Those are actually some of the scenes that I find a bit like I wish I could skip over because yeah. I I feel like I just don't need them, and it's 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 always just a bit over the top and a bit ridiculous. But anyway, um, it's look it's. I had a good time with this movie, Paul, a, a way better time than I thought I was going to. I did too. And I guess what's what's interesting about that is, for me, and you know, spoiler alert, this, this, this quite possibly will be my lowest ranked movie. So I'm, uh, you know, we're going to rank these movies as we go. So I'm going to rank this below The Phantom Menace at this point. And for me to come out of that experience of watching it and like you, to be able to say, oh, this was, I had, I had a great time watching it, it still says something about there's something in here. There's there's still something really good. There's still good in it. <laughs> there's still good in it. I can feel it. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. I think 
the Phantom Menace is still slightly above this for me. I think there's 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 so much I love about the Phantom Menace, even though I know there's lots to cringe about. And this is this is good, and I think it's it's aged a lot better than I expected. But I think for me, Phantom Menace than Attack of the Clones still. Yeah, no, I I think that's I think that's good, and um, and yeah, we're we're nicely set up for for episode three and. We're on a roll here, Daniel, and I've decided that next week we're gonna we're gonna carry on. We're gonna go into Revenge of the Sith. Let's do it. I'm I'm very excited. I can't wait to talk about it. Yep. Well, thanks for listening into this podcast. We would love to hear in your thoughts, just like with the Phantom Menace, your thoughts around Attack of the Clones. Um, does anyone out there know anything about this Trinity College in Dublin? I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. Um, do get in touch with us at halfmeasurespodcast.com or across our social media. Thank you again, and yeah, do reach out if you've got any thoughts, feedback, any other trivia that we might not have mentioned on the show. But until next week, everyone, adios.